I want to invite you to the book of Psalm, Psalm 109. You guys are marching through the Psalms on Wednesday night, and I am almost certain that Frank Peavy looked at Psalm 109, and he said, I'll tell you what we're going to do with this one. We're going to give it to John Allen, because it is a difficult passage to, uh, to understand. Uh, it is a difficult passage, uh, to be honest with you, a difficult passage to preach, but what I love about expository preaching is that the purpose of the text is the purpose of the sermon. And it drives the direction of the message. And so if I were preaching tonight, if I were invited back here, you know, 300 more times over the next however many years, I would never randomly pick Psalm 109 because of the difficulty of the contents. But nonetheless, it's there. And we know that God has inspired not just John 3.16, uh, not just Philippians chapter 2, not just the Romans road. God has inspired every single word that is inside this book. And as a result of that, every word, every passage, every chapter is worthy of our attention. It is worthy of study, and it is worthy of diving into. And there are great lessons inside of this passage. Now, I was also told, told that I had an hour tonight. And I'm not going to take an hour of your time tonight. Uh, so what we're going to do is, if anybody asks, Frank asks, Travis asks, anybody asks, what did we do? You say, the preacher let us fellowship for the first 15 minutes, and then we had a wonderful time in the Word. We're not going to say John Allen was 10 minutes late. Right? Yes. But, um, but Psalm 109, the, uh, the title of my message is very simple, and that is that anger, it is anger against unrighteousness. You see, there are imprecatory psalms that deal with the psalmist praying bad things on people that are persecuting him and seeking after his life. And so there is a lot going on in Psalm 109. It is the last of these type of psalms that David writes. David is the only one that writes these imprecatory psalms. They are difficult to interpret. They are difficult to understand. Uh, and this is the last one. It's probably the most vicious one because I began to read through this. And before we ever dive into the passage, I'm reading through this, and I'm reading that David wants this man to die. He wants his wife to be a widow. He doesn't want people to come and feed his children. I'm reading this thinking, this is going to be tough. But I am grateful uh, that, uh, that, that we can gather together and look together at what God has to say to us. So Psalm chapter 109, um, if you found your place in God's Word and you are physically able, I'm going to ask that you would stand in honor of and in reverence to the reading of God's inerrant, life-giving Word. It says this, Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tired, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food from, uh, far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. 
Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let none of the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off um, um, the memory of them from the earth. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Father, we are grateful that you speak truth through your word. And Father, I pray that as we gather at your feet for these few brief moments, God, that you would use the Holy Spirit in our life to, to peel back the scales from our eyes, but God, even more than that, to soften the hardness of our hearts. And God, I pray this. Amen. You can be seated. If you want to know what I believe to be the main lesson from this entire chapter from Psalm 109, it is this, and that is that David trusted God in the midst of difficult times. Now, don't get me wrong, David is praying what we would look at as terrible things upon these people that are persecuting him and coming after him and slandering him and lying to him. But David, at no point in this psalm, says that he's going to take matters in his own hands and he's going to act vengefully. He never does that. David trusts God in the midst of these difficult times. And so my prayer tonight is that we would see that we can trust God regardless of what's going on around us. That he is worthy of us trusting him during those times. And so we've got our spot. There are really four sections in this passage. The first is verses one through five, and that is this. The first note, the first blank you'll have is this. The wicked returned evil for good. The wicked returned evil for good. Now, I'm going to tell you a funny story real quick. This evening, I worked through this. I've been working through this since Monday, really since the end of last week, and, and Monday, and I finished it up this morning, and I know that y'all fill in blanks on Wednesday nights. And so I got a new computer two weeks ago, and so it's a little more up-to-date than my old computer. I bought a computer before we started East Point, which was seven, almost seven years ago. My computer was seven years old, so I needed a new one, so we purchased a new one. And so I shared this document with Rhonda. Okay, and if you know Rhonda, Rhonda's tech savvy. She can do just about anything. And so I'm sitting there. I sent this document to Rhonda, but the way that Wade has these, these uh, Wednesday nights formatted, that's not how I preach. And so I'm going to go back, and I'm going to take what I had written in Wade's format, and I'm going to plug it in to my format. And so I send it to Rhonda, and I don't think about it for a few minutes. I'm just doing other things. And I say a few minutes. It had been a couple of hours. And I go back and start plugging in what I had sent to her, and I notice something. The little blank that you have was blank on mine as well. Our documents were linked together, and if she deleted one thing on her computer, it deleted it immediately on mine. Now, listen, I love technology, but I hated it this afternoon at 345 when I realized that my sermon was being deleted point by point. Now, luckily, I just polished it up this morning, and so I was able to go back and replug in my blanks. It would have been bad had I not been able to remember my own blanks. So, number one, the wicked returned evil for good. And this is what I want you to see here. David wants God to act justly. This is, this is A under point one here. David wants God to act justly. If you go back to the text with me, and we're going to go back to this text all throughout the evening, we see this. Be not silent, O God of my praise. David does not want God to remain silent while he suffers at the hands of wicked men. 
And so he asks God to be not silent. David is likely struggling with the same thing that many of us struggle with today. That is the fact that why is God allowing these wicked men to do the things to me that they are doing? Right? If you read some of the, some of the short prophets, some of the minor prophets, uh, you know, you're going to read some of the prophets' frustration, Zephaniah in particular, with why are the wicked prospering? Why are they doing great? What's going on with this? Why is God allowing this to happen? And David, early on in Psalm 109, in verse 1, he is telling God, God, be not silent. Don't sit aside and, and, and fail to act and fail to speak. And so David asked him to not be silent. Understand something, church. God is never silent. And God is always at work, even when we don't think that he is. And David is asking God, he's saying, please don't be silent during these times. Even when things are dim and when the world seems to be getting worse, we can trust that God is not silent and he will always act with justice. He will always act with justice. We've got uh, several deputies that go to our church and we go to lunch uh, on, a, on, a, on a regular basis. And, and I believe this. I believe that, that God inside of of, of public service and inside of government has given us people to act justly, right? That the position that, that elected officials are in uh, are, are to a certain extent ordained by God for, for us to have rules, regulations. Uh, I see Bill Rasko sitting in front of me right now. Uh, you know, that, that we believe that God has appointed him to this position and allowed him to serve in this role and that, and that, and that police officers, um, uh, people like that, are to act justly. Right? Our government is supposed to act justly. And the church ought to be a place where justice is emphasized. Now, I do want you to think with me back. Can you imagine living? Listen, I say this because you imagine. Some of you are going to be like, I don't have to imagine it. I was around. But can you imagine living during the civil rights movement? Could you imagine seeing and, and hearing Protestant evangelicals say, hey, we shouldn't eat in the same restaurants? We shouldn't worship at the same church. Our kids shouldn't go to the same schools. And could you imagine being a, a believer that is an African-American thinking, hey, this is not just. Right? This, is, this, is not, this is not righteous. Listen, God is just. He always acts justly. The church ought to be about justice. Charles Spurgeon said this, this is the cry of a man whose confidence in God is deep and whose fellowship with him is close and bold. He is asking God to act justly. The B here is this. David is slandered by lying tongues. You go back to the text, look at verse 2. It says, For wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. Listen, wicked people say wicked things. Wicked people say wicked things. What is in the heart of man eventually comes out of his mouth. We learn that in the Gospels, right? What is inside of us always comes out. Your speech and your conversations tell the world the things that you are passionate about. And if there is deceitfulness and there is, there is hypocrisy and there is a, a wickedness inside of you, inside of your heart, if your heart is darkened and you are an unbeliever, guess what's going to come out? Those same type things. 
Listen, if you meet Jack and Geneva Blanton, that is my grandmother, and my, that's my grandfather and my grandmother. You don't have to be around them very long at all, and they're going to tell you they got five grandsons, two granddaughters, and I don't know how many great-grandkids they have at the moment because I can't keep count. Uh, I got five. Gavin's got five. Phillip's got four. Bruce has got four, two foster children, and Justin's got two. I don't know how many that adds up being. It's a lot of, a lot of great-grandkids, but they're going to tell you how many they've got, and they're going to pull up their iPhone, first version iPhone that, that my mom and my aunt give them every time they get an upgrade, and they're going to pull up the pictures of me and my siblings. They're going to tell you that they've got two Southern Baptist preacher grandchildren that, that my, my cousin planted the church in Montana, and I'm here in Lewisburg. They're going to they're gonna tell you all about what my cousins and my brothers do for a living. They're going to tell you all about the great grandkids, how old they are, how smart they are, how brilliant. They think they're all brilliant. Haven't had the heart to tell them they're not as smart as you think they are, right? They're going to tell you those things. Do you know why they're going to tell you those things? Because it wells up out of their hearts, right? You speak about what you're passionate about. And what comes out of your mouth ultimately comes up from the will of your heart. And what is coming out of these men's mouth about King David is deceitfulness. It is lying tongues. It is words, if you look at verse 3, words of hate. They attack him without cause. And by the way, if we read through this, there is a lot of imagery that points us to Jesus all throughout, right? That Jesus did not deserve the persecution that he went through. He did not deserve the cross, and yet they lied. They, they attacked him without cause. One commentary writer said this, The full extent of the misery caused by slander is only understood by the wounded. Listen, David is being attacked unjustly by men who want to destroy him. He's being attacked unjustly by men who want to destroy him. Nothing causes more harm to a church than a slanderous tongue that fans the flames of jealousy and bitterness. Listen, when we read this, we're reading about lost people. And we're reading about how they're treating a man unjustly, how they're slandering him, how they're persecuting him, how they're attacking him without cause. And I want you to understand something. I have seen many churches go through the very same heartache that David is experiencing now. Because lost people, inevitably, that's the reason why regenerate church membership is important, right? We want people in the church to act like believers. They should be believers Church members ought to be people that profess faith in Jesus and that have a growing relationship with Jesus. That's, the, that, that's what we want church members uh, to, to be. And the reason why I believe this, the reason why so many, I read today that 50% of pastors over the next five years will leave the ministry. 50% of pastors in the next five years will leave the ministry. 250, I think, every week are leaving the ministry across the country. And I believe one of the main reasons we see pastors struggling with depression, pastors getting burned out, is because we have churches that are filled with people that do not know Jesus. And I got news for you. You can't make dead people walk. You can't make dead people act like saved people. And David is experiencing this idea and, and this, 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 this notion that, 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 that people who are part of God's people, but aren't really God's people, and they're slandering him. And they're saying things negative about him. Listen, I've seen many churches go through the heartache of disunity. 
because slanderous people deal with things in the parking lot, not face-to-face. If you can't say amen to that, you can say ouch, because sometimes it just fits us, right? Listen, that's not appropriate. That's not what we see the Word telling us. And I want you to see David's response to all of this, because it's really astounding. Look at verse 4. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. Let's see. David gave himself people who falsely accused him, who slandered him, and he took their name before a loving God. You see, David responded to these false allegations not by, not by slandering them, not by cursing them, but by going before God in prayer. You see, David devoted himself to prayer. David became, I, I, I read earlier, David became prayer as these people became malice. David made it clear that he is a man of prayer, that he loved prayer, that he prized prayer, and more than anything, that he practiced prayer. He was a man who prayed daily, and he took this matter before God. Matthew Henry said this, a good man is made up of prayer, and he gives himself to prayer. When David's enemies falsely accused him and misrepresented him, he appealed to God by praying for them. Now, what does he pray for? We're going to get into that the rest of the passage, okay? Because it's, it's, it gets kind of heated. So even though these people hate David, he prayed for them. That's a pretty good lesson for us. If there are people that dislike us, slander us, uh, malign us, we need to go before God on their behalf and pray for them. David did that. And D here, I want you to see this, David's love was rejected. If you go back to verse 4 and look at what it says, it says, in return for my love, they accuse me. Verse 5, so they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Listen, when we read this, our mind ought to go to the cross to a certain extent, right? David is foreshadowing. He's given us a picture of what Jesus comes and does for us later. Jesus loved us. For John chapter 1, right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were created through Him. Nothing was created apart from Him, right? In Him was life. The life was the light of men. The light shined in the darkness, yet the darkness did not what? Did not comprehend it. Jesus came into his own and his own rejected him. Jesus showed them what sacrificial love was all about. And what did they give him in return? They gave him the cross. Right? They rewarded him evil for good. Hatred for love. And David is telling us here, listen, I gave you love and you have rejected that love. The second thing we learn in the psalm is this. We learn that the wicked are accursed. Not only do the wicked return evil for good, but the wicked are accursed. Look with me in verse 6. It says, Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as Sin. David prays for three things, and then he gives us an observation. And by the way, there are 31 verses here. And so we are not going to be able to pull out a lesson from every verse uh, because we do not have... I, listen, I have time for that. Most of y'all probably don't have time for that tonight. So we got to keep this thing again in about 40 minutes, right? And so, first thing David prays for here is that the wicked are found guilty before a holy God. He wants the wicked to be found guilty. Appoint a wicked man against him. Um, 
and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty, and let his prayer be counted as sin. This is what I want you to understand. David understood this, I believe, and because and, and, David is the one who wrote, from my mother's womb, uh, or I came forth, uh, I, was, I was born out of iniquity, right? In iniquity did my mother conceive me. But we need to understand this is below, below A here. We are all guilty apart from Christ. We are all guilty apart from Christ. David knew that these wicked men were not true believers. And so he wants them to be found guilty for what they have done. B here, I want you to see David, the second thing David prays for them, and that is that the wicked will be replaced. So not only does David talk about them being guilty before God, and we're all guilty before God. All right, if you stumble through the doors of this church this evening and you think, hey, and you're buying what, what culture is telling you, you're buying what uh, 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 universities and colleges are telling you, and that is that man is inherently good. I want you to understand something. Man is inherently wicked. We are by nature children of wrath. We're all born sinners. If you don't believe that, you can come babysit my children this week. And you were going to learn that my oldest one, he's a sinner. My second one, he's a bigger sinner than the first one. The rest of them, you'll learn that sinners come in all shapes and sizes. I got five of them, by the way. Layton six, Keller's four, Drew Grayson is three, Lola is two, and Dawson is one. They're all, they're all, look, they're all awesome, but they're all sinners. We're all sinners apart from Christ, and we're guilty. Only in Christ can we find forgiveness. Only in Christ can we find restoration. Only in Christ can we be seen as innocent before God. B, I'm sorry, I'm getting, I'm getting off topic. B here, that the wicked will be replaced. Look at verse 8 with me. It says, may his days be few, may another take his office. And when I'm reading this and studying through this, uh, I, I'm, I'm reminded of something here. And, and, and just under B here, I want you to understand that people celebrate when wicked leaders are removed. People celebrate when wicked leaders are I remember, regardless of where you stood, because most people in this room, I'm 33, and I remember this. And I'm going to guess there's not but about five people in this room younger than me, six people in this room younger than me, not a whole lot. But I remember, so regardless of what you thought of the Iraq war, uh, I remember when that statue came down of Saddam Hussein. I remember it. People were around, they were chanting, and they were cheering. And in that moment, regardless if you thought we should be there or not, you celebrated the fact that a wicked man was taken out of power, right? You, you celebrate. Listen, regardless of the difficulty of, 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 of having a democracy in the Middle East, regardless of all of those things, in that moment, you celebrated the fact that his days were few and that his office was going to be taken by another. You were grateful for that. World War II, when, when, Hitler, uh, when Hitler took the coward's way out and killed himself, we, it was a, a, a day for people to celebrate that a wicked man was taken, taken out. So when I read, may his days be few, may another take his office, those are the kinds of things that come to my mind. That the wicked will be replaced, that people will celebrate when wicked leaders are removed. And see here, I'll see this, that the wicked leave no legacy. Look at verse 9 with me. This is where we get into some difficult things. It says, May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. 
David prays. Let me, let me tell you what David is praying for, this, for these men. He's praying death on them. He's praying death on them. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. And by the way, I read, I've read a lot. I've read um, in preparation for this and studying this. And if you want me to say, should we pray for people to die today? It's about 50-50 is what scholars think. Right? Some people say that's not the mind of a Christian. That's not the, the position of a Christian. And there are some really godly men that say, absolutely, there are some wicked people in this world, and we should pray their end come. So the answer to that is going to be you pray, seek the word, study it. I'm not going to give you my view on that tonight. So I know that's kind of dancing around it. Um, but here we go. The wicked leave no legacy. We read that in verse 9. I'm sorry, in verse 10. And then, I'm sorry, verse 9. Then we read verse 10. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any pity to his fatherless children. This sounds extremely harsh, but this is what David is praying for these people. He is praying that, uh, he's praying that, that this wickedness under sea here, David did not want wickedness to be passed down from generation to generation. He didn't want wickedness to be passed down from generation to generation. And so he's praying that, that, that this man come to an end. Verse 13, may his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. And so as we read that, and we read about how, how David wanted this man's legacy to be over with, for him to be forgotten, I'm reminded as I'm studying for this and prepping for this, the importance for believers not to have multi-generational um, um, wickedness, but to have multi-generational faithfulness, right? Those of you who have children still living at home under your roof, the importance for you uh, to pour into your children, to invest into your children, to share the gospel with your children, to have an intentional plan in your home, to teach your children uh, the, you know, about the Bible, to teach your children about the things of God, uh, about God himself, right? To have that there because the importance of multi-generational faithfulness uh, cannot be overstated. David wants this man's children to not even remember their father. He wants it to end at the second generation. But it is a reminder to us believers that multi-generational faithfulness is of great importance. Listen, Derek is in the, in, I, Derek is somewhere studying. Oh, I know where he is. Derek's at Fields of Faith tonight, FCA at Lewisburg High School. That's where Derek is tonight. Uh, and Kevin, Rev Kev, uh, one of my favorite guys on staff. He's, Kevin is always up to go eat. I'll tell you that. That's one of the reasons why he's one of my favorite guys on staff. Travis is too. Um, but uh, Rev Kev, does, does your children's ministry, and I want you to understand something. It is not Derek's job, and it is not Kevin's job to disciple your children. It is the parent's job to disciple your children. If what Derek and Kevin do on Sundays and Wednesdays is not gravy on top of the foundation, uh, maybe a bad illustration, I'm going to get you thinking about biscuits, but if it's not gravy on top of a foundation that you have laid at home, it's going to be difficult for it to succeed. It is important for us to invest in the next generation. And when we read this, David is praying that the wickedness of these men not be passed down. Indeed, here, I want you to say this. The wicked did not show compassion to the least of these. Look with me in verse 16. Let's read what David says about them. He says, For he did not remember to show kindness 
but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. The wicked did not show compassion to the least of these. Listen, how we treat those in society, I'm sorry, how we treat those society views as unlovable says a lot about our character and walk with God. That's your blank under, under D there. How we treat those society views as unlovable says a lot about our character and our walk with God. Patty Allen does y'all special needs ministry here at Longview Point. Let me tell you something. That is a testimony to, to loving, uh, to loving pe- those that, that some in the world would say, are unlovable. Christians ought to love those that are different than us. We ought to love those society throws out as outcast. And when we read verse 16, we read what the wicked did not do, and they did not show kindness. Not only did they not show kindness, but they pursued the poor and needy and brokenhearted to put them to death. They pursued after them. Listen, wicked men pursued after those that were most vulnerable in society in order to put them to death. Verse 17 here. He loved to curse. Let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing, be it far from him. Once again, and I think we see this all throughout Scripture, and that is that God blesses us for us to be a blessing to those that are around us. To be a blessing to the needy, to the poor, and to the brokenhearted. These wicked men did not delight in blessing. Christians ought to delight in blessing. They ought to delight in giving. Number three here, third observation from this text. We see that God saves according to his steadfast love. If you'll go back to the text. We'll read in verse 18, he clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he, that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. In verse 20 here, may this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. Verse 21, but you, O Lord, I'm sorry, O, o God, my Lord, deal on my behalf. For your name's sake, because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. David gave this situation to the Lord and trusted that God would work for his name's sake. Did you read verse 21? But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. He doesn't say, give me an opportunity to be vengeful. He doesn't say, give me the opportunity to slander them in return. He doesn't say any of those things. He says, you deal on my behalf. I'm reminded as Moses and the people of Israel are about to cross the Red Sea, they're probably all thinking, we better build a boat. We better do something. We better all take swimming lessons. We're going to have to get across this thing because the Egyptians are pursuing after us. And Moses stands before the people and says, you sit back and you let God do the work and we'll walk on dry ground. He says in verse 21, something very similar. Deal on my behalf for your namesake. 
I sent you this. I'm going to give this over to you, and I'm going to trust that you're going to work in this situation. This is what I want you to know. It's below A here, and that is that God works all things together for our good and for his glory. God works all things together for our good and his glory. Listen, that does not mean that you're not going to go to the, hospital or, or, or to the doctor in the next month or two and get a diagnosis that you don't want. That does not mean that you're going to get that dream house that you've always desired. It does not mean that you're going to get the job that's going to pay you the most amount of money. It doesn't mean that your children are not going to cause you heartache and pain. It doesn't mean that life is going to be easy, but it does mean that God works all things together for our good and for his glory. Listen, we don't always have to like the plan that God has for us. You don't have to like the seasons of life you have to go through at different times. But we do have to, as Christians, to trust that God is good and that he is working all things together. That diagnosis, that difficult situation, that heartache, that pain, he is working all things together for our good and his glory. We have to trust in that. We have to cling to that. Because regardless of the difficulty that comes in this life, we can believe that God is the one who is sovereign over all things and that nothing happens outside of his control. I want you to see this as well in verse 22. I want you to see that David was physically, spiritually, and emotionally exhausted. Go to the text. Look with me. What, how does David describe himself in verse 22 here? He says, For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me, I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like locusts. My knees are weak through fasting. My body uh, has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Listen, if you have been a believer long enough, and you've lived life long enough, there have been times where you are emotionally spiritually, and physically exhausted. Listen, I, I, I told you earlier, I've got five kids. I pastor a six-and-a-half-year-old church plant. Um, we, I very seldom have to make hospital visits at East Point. We, we do not have tons of senior adults. Uh, we're, a, we're a congregation made up of 25 to 45s, and if you do the math, that's a 10-year younger than me, 10-year older than me. Uh, there's a lot of studies done on that as to why that's the case. Um, but in Lewisburg, Mississippi, we have reached people 10 years older than me, 10 years younger than me. Now, there's people younger than that, and there's some people older than that. That's pretty much it. Uh, and so, um, but my day is full. It is full. I, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be, I'm say this. I'm supposed to be writing a dissertation right now. This can put on the back burner for a little bit. We're building a house at the moment. Uh, we, uh, we announced our church last Sunday night that we're going to break ground on a building in the spring uh, to, to, to build a, a, a million-dollar building there up Craft Road, just a mile and a half north of the school. Uh, there's a lot of things on my plate. When I get home tonight, my youngest two will already be in the bed, but I will go into Leighton, Keller, and Grayson. Uh, I will read a Bible story to them. I will pray over them and pray with them. And by the time I spend 30 to 45 minutes with my wife, before I even get to my wife, I'm going to be physically and, and, and emotionally exhausted. But to a certain extent, man, that's what manhood is. 
you get up, you go to work, you, you, you come home, you don't sit on the couch and veg out, you spend time with your children, you intentionally love them, you pray for them before bed, you spend some meaningful time with your spouse, you go to sleep, and guess what you do the next day? The same thing all over again, right? And there are going to be seasons where you are like David, and you say, I'm the one who's poor and I'm needy. My heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening, and I am shaken like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting, and my body has become gaunt with no fat. There's going to be times, and I don't just say that to men, uh, there are going to be times where all of you are exhausted. Okay, let me tell you something. There are some days where I wake up, and I, and I cannot wait to... To, to, to get my cup of coffee, get that shower, and head out the door to get late into school because I know that there are four little kids at the house that my wife is home with all day long. And when I get home, there are some days where she's done. Okay, I'll walk in, and she'll say something like, they're yours, dinner's on the, on the stove, I'll be back around nine. Okay? And so when I say that I get exhausted Listen, I know that ladies do as well. And there are going to be times and seasons where we are exhausted. And I love what David says early on in this passage on verse 21. During those times, we're reminded that God saves us according to his steadfast love. It says, but you, O Lord my God, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Listen, God doesn't give us the sustaining power to get through the day. God does not give us victories every day in life. God does not give us victory through the cross for our namesake. He does that for his namesake. Because his, look at the verse 21, because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me. Listen, David, this is under V here, David had nowhere else to look but to God for help. He had nowhere else to look but to God for help. And that's who he looked to. That's who he was clinging to, and that's who he longed for. See here, I want you to see this, verse 26. David wants his accusers to see God, I'm sorry, to see the work of God in his life. Look at verse 26. He says this, Help me, O Lord my God, save me according to your steadfast love. Again, the same wording there we see in verse 21 just about. Let them know let them, that's those that are, that are uh, persecuting him uh, and slandering him, let them know that this is your hand. You, O oh Lord, have done it. David is praying that those around him would see the hand of God working in his life. In verse 27, then verse 28, let them curse, but you will bless. He's saying, let them curse me, but you'll bless me. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. Listen, there is something about the fact that Christians can get the worst diagnosis that a doctor can give you, and they can walk out not excited about it, but rejoicing in the fact that God is still with them. There is something significant about that. He's saying, they arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. Again, understand the context. David is in the midst of being slandered. He is helpless in the middle of this. He's with the church. It is certainly a problem with, with millennials. I'm a millennial, so I can make fun of my own generation. Okay, I was homeschooled 
I can make fun of homeschoolers. At least that's what I think in my head. So this is the problem with millennials. They get consumed about things that are going on around them in their life. And they forget about the fact that they can have joy, they can have contentment, and they can have satisfaction regardless of what's going on around them. They let their circumstances dictate their demeanor. And we can't do that. David chooses to be glad even in the midst of difficult and trying times. Listen, your circumstances do not define you. Jesus does. My the little boy that we adopted, Grayson, we adopted him through foster care. Uh, when then, uh, through a series of events, last fall, we ended up at St. Jude um, because blood platelet counts were extremely low. Uh, they believed that he had leukemia. We didn't know that. So they were going to run some tests. And so we spent the day at the hospital. I spent the night at the hospital. spent a couple of nights at the hospital. Uh, only to find out that he did not have leukemia, which was a, a great thing to rejoice in. But they did find something else that we had to go have further testing for. And so we ended up at Le Bonner uh, the next week for, him then to, for them to evaluate him. Uh, and then ultimately, uh, right after Christmas, uh, maybe in the first week of January, he was diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which is a degenerative muscle disease. Uh, which, according to the doctors, will put him in a wheelchair around age eight. Uh, lavish life expectancy somewhere around mid twenties. Not really sure. Um, and so we have people. We have nurses come to our house every week. He gets infusions all the time. Uh, Austin is constantly going to Labonner. She's constantly going to um, uh, even to St. Jude now to have some other tests ran. It's 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 a it's an endless cycle. It seems like. But I went, this is going to get random, but I went to get my taxes done for my CPA. His name's Dave Freeman. He is one of the most godly men I've ever met in my life. He lives in Wyatt, Mississippi. He is uh, a member at my former church. And, and he had heard about what was going on with Grayson. It wasn't a secret. At that point, we had told people what was going on with Grayson. And I remember Dave sitting across the table, and he's asking me about Grayson's diagnosis. And Dave is smiling, because this is just who Dave is. He's got joy of Jesus all over him. And and uh, he's like, man, just think of how awesome his testimony is going to be one day when he can tell the world that his diagnosis doesn't define him, that Jesus does. And listen, I, it's, uh, it, it, and I'm going to be honest with you, that was the end of January. We were about three or four weeks upon getting the news ourselves. Uh, we were still somewhat wallowing in our own self-pity. Uh, and when I heard that, I was reminded of the fact that God is sovereign, that God knew this was going to take place. His diagnosis did not catch him by surprise. That God allowed this to take place. And his circumstances do not have to define him. That Jesus can. Your circumstances do not have to define you. Jesus can. David wants his accusers to see the hand of God at work in his life. And he chooses, according to the end of verse 28, that he will be glad. Your servant will be glad. Verse 29 here. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped with their own shame as in a cloak. And then the last thing we see, and we're going to close out. I say this, we've got an application points, which may take us forever. But it's this. God is worthy of our praise in the midst of difficulty. God is worthy of our praise in the midst of difficulty. And it comes to verse 30 and 31. Listen to what David says. 
David says, with my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. For he stands at the right hand of the needy one. Listen to this. To save him from those who condemn his soul to death. Early on, this is what I want you to see here. David enthusiastically praised the Lord. When he says, with my, mouth, I, with my mouth, I will give great thanks. That word great there doesn't just mean that, that he's going he's gonna to say it a little bit louder. No, no, no. It means that David is going to enthusiastically worship and praise God. And this I want you to notice under, under that, David did not offer some mundane routine or ritual. He worshiped God unashamedly. He worshiped God unashamedly. And it wasn't just some mundane routine that he offered him. No, no, no. He gave great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. And then verse 30 says this. For he stands at the right hand of the needy one. If you're here tonight and you think, I, I, I'm helpless. I've got good news for you tonight. I know one who can help. I know one who comes alongside of those that are exhausted. I know the one who comes alongside of those that are needy. I know the one who comes alongside of those that when everything else seems to be falling apart around them, he can be your rock. For he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. So B under, verse four, under, under number four here is that David recognized that God was his advocate. David recognized that God was his advocate, that he was the one that would come alongside of him, that would help him in the midst of difficulty, that would, that would be his rock. And so one of that, I want you to know this, that David knew that God helped those who came to him in need. You know, the old saying is that God helps those who help themselves. I don't know that that statement could be anything further from the Scriptures. God helps those who realize they're helpless and that come to him in need. I'm reminded of this, so I'll put the question in there. If God is for us, who can be against us? Because I believe the psalmist in the middle of all this is reminded of the fact that if God is for me, it doesn't matter if the world is against me. God is the one who's for me. I've got a few points of application, and we'll close out. I want to encourage you. And I didn't bring my backpack. It's in my truck. I don't know why I didn't bring that inside. But I want to encourage you to give yourself to and labor in prayer. Listen, there is... There is something good about you praying throughout the day. Spontaneous prayer, when you realize a need and you're praying for it immediately. There's something about that. But for those of you in this room that have been a Christian for some time and you do not have any kind of formal prayer guide in your life to give you direction in prayer, I want you to know that that is spiritual laziness. You need people that you're lifting up consistently before God in prayer. You need Men, if you're not praying for your wife daily, you are failing her. If you are not praying for your children daily, you are failing them. We need to be a people. Listen, I remember being 18 years old. I had grown up in church, and I had a man pull me aside, and he began to disciple me and, and several of my friends who had been called to ministry. And he said, I'll tell, I'm, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to teach you how to pray. And I thought, teach me how to pray? What does that even mean? He said, you're going to get a prayer guide. You're going to write names down. You're going to write ministries down. You're going to write family members down. You're going to write missionaries down. You're going to write pastors' names down, and you're going to pray for them. 
when it comes to their day, you're going to pray for them. So I'm going to tell you what I do. I have a uh, prayer guide, and it is Monday through Thursday. Do you know why it's Monday through Thursday? Because I just know that at one point, one day of that week, somewhere in me, there's going to be some laziness. And I'm going to miss. And so come Friday, if I missed Mondays, or if I missed Wednesdays, if I missed one of those days, I can make up for it on that day. But I would encourage you, develop a prayer guide. Listen, don't just randomly pray before meal times and randomly pray here and there in the middle of the day. Labor in prayer. Spend time taking the names of people you know before God in prayer. I know that East Point Church will be too big when I cannot go before God and lift every family up to Him on a consistent basis in prayer. I have our families broken down based on small groups. And I, every week, I carve out the time to go through there and to pray for them. So when Justin Dawson baptized Laney and Carter, when Tim Walker baptized Leah and Kara, when Josh McKinney baptized Zeke, uh, when these parents baptized their children, it wasn't some random thing. It was a prayer that I had been praying for their children since they had joined our church. Church, if you want to see God answer prayers, you need to pray. You need to pray. So give yourself to and labor in prayer. David did it. We should do it. Number two, faithfully share the gospel to break the chains of multi-generational lostness. When we read this and David is praying that this man would die, that his children uh, wouldn't remember him, that, it would end, that this wickedness would end at the second generation, let me tell you the best way to break multi-generational lostness today, share the gospel. If you want to see God do a work in that neighbor that you have that you can't stand, don't act like you don't have that neighbor. Don't act like that. That cousin that comes to the family get-together at Thanksgiving and all he does is complain, and you want to tell him just to be quiet. That man at work who never fails to say the inappropriate thing and the vulgar thing all throughout the day. If you want to see God do a work in their life, share the gospel with them. Because I have a God who is able to take that mouth and clean it up. I have a God who's able to take that neighbor that doesn't value anything that you value and, and who can give him a biblical worldview as he grows in godliness. Share the gospel. Faithfully do it. You'll see multi-generational lostness ch changed. Number three here. Consistently show kindness to the poor, needy, and brokenhearted around you. Consistently show kindness to the poor, needy, and brokenhearted around you. Listen, it doesn't take a lot to be kind. Right? I mean, it doesn't take a lot to be kind. You have no clue what people are going through. No idea. A sharp word, a quick answer, a, a harsh statement can make a bad day even worse. I've never met anybody that Jesus didn't love and couldn't save, so make sure you're kind to people, especially the poor, needy, and brokenhearted around you. And number four here, we'll close with this. Always praise God regardless of your circumstances. Always praise God, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of what's going on around you. Be faithful and praising God.